right, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to see you this morning. So glad to sing with you this morning. Uh, man, that was a blessing to my heart. Last week, um, last week on Sunday morning, we were gathered together with just a very few uh, believers in a very small room uh, in northern Africa uh, to worship together. And uh, it was all like concrete walls and tile floors, all hard surfaces. And there were just a few of us. And, and I said to Mama T before we started uh, to sing together, I was like, you're going to have to really do your thing here. Uh, because Dylan and I are also in the room. And that, uh, you're going to have to offset us um, in, in how we do. And, and uh, it, was, it was beautiful and sweet to sing with just those few believers uh, there in, in northern Africa. And it's beautiful and sweet to sing with you. Uh, our church family that we love so much this morning. Uh, what, a, what a blessing it is to worship the Lord together, right? And we don't want to miss out on that. Any opportunity we get to worship the Lord together, we, we want to take it. Do you have your Bible this morning? I hope you do and that you'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. That's where we're at today. It's where we've been for a while now. Last week, Pastor Joe preached to you from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Only verse 10. Um, while, while, like one time I, I said, hey, you, you start at this verse and you go as far as, as you want while I'm gone. And he like finished a chapter that was going to take me months to finish. And he, so this time I said, no, you only get verse 10. Only verse, don't finish out our study of Second Peter, only verse 10. Um, along with you, I am thankful for Pastor Joe. I'm thankful for his ministry here. You probably know that last week was a difficult one for Pastor Joe and his family. Uh, with the suffering and loss of his father-in-law, Jerry Williams. And yet, in the midst of that suffering and that pain and that hard time, he preached the word of God to you. He served you. He carried your burdens, even as he carried his own burdens, along with his family. And I want to take an opportunity in light of that to remind you that we do carry our own burdens. We pastors have our own struggles, our own problems that we're dealing with, even as we try to help you with yours. And we want to help you with yours, even as we deal with our own. And so as we seek to be sensitive to you in the various pains and problems that you are experiencing, let me take this opportunity to ask you to please don't forget to be sensitive to us. And specifically this week, I want to ask you to pray for Pastor Joe as he prepares to preach his father-in-law's funeral on Friday of this week. That will not be an easy thing to do. Funerals are rarely an easy thing to do, let alone when it's someone close to you. So let us bear his burden this week in prayer by lifting him up and asking the Lord to provide for him uh, as he proclaims the gospel um, in memory of, of Jerry Williams and, and to people who desperately need to hear, many who desperately need to hear. Well, the text that Pastor Joe preached last week spoke of the impending and surprising day of the Lord. I read one commentator that spent some time reflecting on the increased longing for the day of the Lord that he has experienced in recent years as he observes the troubling trajectory of this world. He, he talked about turning on the news and seeing this or that, or walking down the street and seeing this or that, or observing in his own family this kind of suffering and that kind of suffering. And he said, regularly now, on my heart and, and, and on my lips is the prayer, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I wonder if we're experiencing the same thing. Like, as we go through life, are we more and more frequently saying, come, Lord Jesus? That is our only hope, and that is the longing of our heart. My favorite comment, though, on verse 10 came from R.C. Sproul, who said this. He said, the New Testament tells us that this day will come like a thief comes, unannounced and unexpected. It might happen today or tomorrow, 
or it may take another 10,000 years. And this is classic Sproul. At the risk of sounding cynical, I really do not care about the exact date. I know that God is going to keep his word, and I know that he has set a date. He's going to keep his word. doesn't matter to us when it is. We trust his promise, and we live in expectation of that. And my question for you is, are you ready for that great and terrible day of the Lord? Well, this week what we're going to do is transition from the indicative statements that began back in verse 3, where Pastor Peter is teaching us how to think about the return of Christ. We're going to transition to a more imperative voice, which is now going to address what do we do about it, right? He's been teaching us how to think about the promised return of Christ and the things that are going to happen, and now he's going to say, now this is what you need to do about it. And that's good pastoral move. We know a thing or two about this indicative, imperative connection in the scriptures. Here what we see is Peter engaging the issue of eschatology, the issue of last things, with a very pastoral approach, desiring not just to inform his audience theologically, but also to transform them practically. And that's the way it should go. That's the way it should go in our study of eschatology. It should not just be information, theological information, but it should lead to practical transformation. We're familiar with this, especially because of our study of Revelation, where we saw that that book, that whole book of Revelation, has a pastoral tone from the beginning to the end and is meant to encourage suffering and struggling believers to persevere, to persevere knowing that the Lord is in control even of the suffering and tribulation that they are experiencing and that they will experience. There's always a pastoral tone uh, to eschatology, and we want to see that in the text even today. So we're going to read this morning, starting in chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 13, we're going to really zoom in, though, on 11, 12, and 13. That's our text for this morning. So read it with me. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, get close to somebody who does have one so you can follow along uh, today as we study God's Word. This is what it says. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you 
for all you have shown us, all you have taught us over these last few weeks about the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remind us of those things today as you call us to a certain way of living. By your Spirit, help us to live as people who are marked by holiness and godliness. Make us a people who are looking for and hastening even the day of the Lord as we cling to your promise of new heavens and a new earth where we will dwell with you eternally in righteousness. We ask that you would cause us to think rightly today and to live rightly as well. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so look at the first part of verse 11. Pastor Peter says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The first bit of verse 11 is Peter's way of transitioning from the indicative statements, statements of fact about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the imperative calls to action in light of his imminent return. This obviously connects back to verse 10 that Pastor Joe preached last week, but it really stretches back further to verse 3 and the discussion of the return of Christ, uh, which will bring about two things, right? We've been talking about this for weeks now. The return of Christ will bring about two things. Number one, the destruction of the enemies of God in righteous judgment. When Christ returns, the enemies of God will be destroyed in righteous judgment. And number two, the salvation of the friends of God in gracious deliverance. When Christ returns, the friends of God who have been redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, will be saved and delivered ultimately, fully, and finally. The return of Christ will bring about those two things. And we have seen that all throughout 2 Peter. In fact, we even saw it in 1 Peter uh, several months ago when we studied through that letter. And we've seen that in Revelation. When we studied through Revelation um, in this room, For months and months, we saw those two things are a constant theme of the return of Christ. The destruction of God's enemies and the redemption, full and final, of his people. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, it'll be bad news, really bad news, for those who reject and oppose him. Jesus is coming back, and that is the best news for those who trust in him, for those who live for him. But Pastor Peter is going to take those ideas and then say, since this is going to happen... We don't know when it's going to happen, as we saw last week, but since this is going to happen, what sort of people ought we to be? How should we live in light of this? He raises the matter in the form of a question in the text, but it's a literary device. This question is a literary device intended to carry an imperative force, which is clearly seen in the phrase, holy conduct and godliness. Peter's not raising a question that you don't know the answer to. He's not raising a question that he doesn't supply the answer to. He doesn't just say, what kind of people ought you to be? Let's hear some answers. He says, what kind of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That's the kind of people you ought to be. That imperative force comes out clearly in the NIV. If you're looking at the NIV, you'll notice that it says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? And then it says, you ought to live holy and godly lives. Like that, that really kind of captures Peter's pastoral intent here. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to be holy and godly people. That's the kind of people you ought to be. And he's going to call us to that holiness and godliness. Um, CSB also gets this when it says, since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear. It is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. Now, those two translations lose the question the question that is actually in the text, but they carry the sense of responsibility that Peter is clearly intending. 
There's another really interesting thing going on in the original language that just cannot carry over into any translation in English. And it's this. Both the words for holy conduct and godliness in the text are plural. Both the words for holy conduct and godliness are plural. So a literal reading would be like this. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conducts and godliness is? And that's significant. It doesn't work in English, but it's significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, let's acknowledge that there are many ways we demonstrate holiness and godliness in our lives, right? It's not as if there's a singular way we demonstrate holiness and godliness. In fact, what we should understand here is that holiness and godliness are, be, are to be the marks of every aspect of our lives. And I, I love the last song that we sing because it teaches us that, right? Take my life, all of me. Take my silver, my gold, take my intellect, take my mind, take my hands, take my feet, take my lips, take all of it, right? In all of it, I want to be holy and godly. So he says, holiness is and godliness is. But secondly, let's observe that Pastor Peter wisely does not give his audience a checklist here. He doesn't say, what sort of people ought we should be in light of the return of Christ? Well, we should people be people who never eat pork and never do any work on Saturday and give 10% of our money uh, to the church. He doesn't give like a laundry list, a checklist of things. Rather, he gives this open, this open-ended um, directive of we should be holy in our conduct and godly in our behavior. He doesn't give us a spreadsheet of do's and don'ts as we wait for the return of Christ. Rather, he calls us to holiness and godliness in every aspect of our lives. That's super helpful for us to not have that list because when people get lists like that, they get self-righteous, right? And they get judgmental toward other people. And they fail to be holy and righteous in all aspects of life. And so Pastor Peter wisely leaves it open. Now before we move on, let me once again emphasize the link between our thinking and our living. There is a link between our doctrine and our practice. They are, those two things are linked together always. Our heads and our hearts travel together. And we see it in the false teachers that Peter has been addressing throughout this letter. They obviously think wrongly about the return of Christ, right? They deny the return of Christ. They say, where is the promise of his coming? They say he's not coming. No, nothing has changed since the beginning of time. They think wrongly about the return of Christ. They deny the return of Christ. They deny the judgment that comes with the return of Christ. And so they live without any care for holiness and godliness. Because they think wrongly about the return of Christ, they live wrongly in light of it. They indulge the flesh at every desire, in its every desire, in every way they can imagine. They think wrongly about doctrine and they live wrongly in light of it. And that's the way it goes. Whereas Peter is calling the faithful to be different. We believe that Jesus is coming back. Amen? We believe that Jesus is coming back. We believe that when he does, he will judge every man according to his deeds. And so, we pursue godliness. We pursue holiness. Not that we will one day arrive at sinless perfection here on the earth, but we pursue godliness and holiness so that our lives are marked by a trajectory of growth in holiness and godliness. That we are more and more conformed to the image of Christ as the days go by. That we are more and more putting to death the deeds of the body and more and more living in the righteousness that has been credited to us by grace through faith. Because we believe in the return of Christ, 
we pursue holiness and godliness in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a troubling thing that many folks, among us even, say the right things about the return of Christ. There are many among us who will say, Amen, Jesus is coming back. Amen, when he does, he will judge the living and the dead. Amen, when he comes back, he will destroy his enemies and he will vindicate his people. Amen, we say the right things about the return of Christ, but we live like the false teachers. That's a troubling thing. Something is terribly wrong if that's the case in your life or my life. Maybe God will use this text today to bring us to repentance if that's the case. If there's a disconnect somehow between our doctrine and our living, our thinking and our doing, that God would bring us to repentance, that we would think rightly about the return of Christ and live rightly in light of it. That's what Peter is calling the people to. What sort of people ought we to be? Since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? He goes on and says, looking for and hastening the coming day of God. So as we are living in holiness and godliness, as, our, as we are growing in Christ-likeness in the process of sanctification, we should also be looking for and even hastening the coming day of God. There are three big ideas in verse 12 that I want to point out. First is I want you to notice that Peter draws out the rich imagery of the Old Testament by referring to the day of God. Right? He, he, he's not used that language before, but he's going to use it here. The prophets use the language of the day of the Lord. And when they talk about the day of the Lord, they often say that it is great and terrible. The great and terrible day of the Lord. Great for the people of God, terrible for the enemies of God. Right? They recognize that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment and a day of deliverance. And so Peter is reaching back into the Old Testament and bringing all of that rich imagery out. Second thing he's doing is advising that our posture should be one of expectation, that we should be looking for, right? As we are pursuing growth in godliness, as we are pursuing conformity to the image of Christ, we should also be looking for the day of God. We should be looking for the return of Christ. We should live with expectation and anticipation. And when Jesus spoke about his return, when Jesus talked to his disciples about his return, he was constantly inviting them to stay awake, Keep watch, be on guard, be looking for it, right? In fact, he tells a parable about 10 virgins in Matthew chapter 25, and he delivers the punchline at the end of it. Look at this text. Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins came, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. And then look at the punchline in verse 13. Be on the alert, 
for you do not know the day nor the hour. Right? So, so whereas Pastor Peter says, be looking for the day of God. Be looking for the day of the Lord. Be looking for the return of Christ. He's just echoing what Jesus says almost every time he talks about his own return. Be on the alert. Be looking for it. And we must be looking. Third thing to notice here is that we are to hasten the coming day of God. We are to be looking for and hastening the coming day of God. That's tricky. I'm going to be honest with you. That is a difficult thing to wrap my mind around. NIV says it like this. Look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. How in the world could we, we, be involved in speeding or hastening the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? How could we be involved in hastening, quickening the day of God? Well, I'm going to propose a few ways, but I want to do it with great humility and with deference always to the sovereign plan and timing of Almighty God. I want to affirm what R.C. Sproul said that I quoted at the beginning of the message. Like, I don't know when it is. I just know that that's in the Lord's hands. Right? That's true. We don't, we don't know when it is. It's in the Lord's hand. He has set the date. But Peter is saying here, somehow, we hasten the day. And he's calling us, in light of the return of Christ, to be about the business of hastening the day, of speeding that day. I think there are three ways we do this. Biblically, I think there are three ways we hasten the day. Number one, we hasten the day by evangelism, by being passionate evangelists. Maybe even more specifically, let me say it like this. We hasten the day by global missions, by our participation in global missions, we hasten the day. Look at what Jesus said in Mark 13, verse 10. He says, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. We want to be about preaching the gospel to all the nations, right? He says it more plainly in Matthew 24, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And then the end will come. So it seems like one of the ways that we hasten the day of the Lord is by being busy about proclaiming the gospel to the whole world. And then the end will come. And some of us need to do that by going. Some of us need to drop everything here uproot our lives in the comfort of America and go plant our lives in the discomfort of some dark place where the gospel is not being preached. Some of us need to do that. Some of you have been wrestling with that for quite some time. You're feeling the need to do that. You're feeling the call, so to speak, the desire to do that, and you've been resisting it for some time. Well, let this be just one more prodding from the Holy Spirit to say, this is one of the ways we hasten the day of the Lord, is by being a part of His mission of global redemption. Some of you need to do it by going. Some of you need to do it by sending, by giving, by supporting, by encouraging, by holding the ropes for those who are going. Many of you can do that. And all of us can do it by praying, right? We can be about this work of global evangelism by praying. We can be a partner. Every time I talk to a missionary and ask them, what can we do? They say, you can pray. You can pray, you can pray, you can pray. And so we want to do that. But as we talk about hastening the day of the Lord by evangelism and global missions, we also must recognize that that work will be costly. That work of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth will be costly. But listen, even the martyrdom of faithful proclaimers speeds his coming. Even the martyrdom of faithful missionaries will speed the day of the Lord. 
Look at what Revelation 6 says. Revelation 6, starting in verse 9, is this crazy scene. It says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. We call those guys martyrs, right? They are faithful proclaimers of the gospel. They preached about the salvation that is available only in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they got killed for it, right? It wasn't just that they were silently, secretly following after Jesus and obeying him. No, they were loud, bold witnesses testifying to the the gospel, and it got them killed, right? And they're under the altar, And look what it says. They cried out from under the altar with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Right? You you, you get that sense of how long will it be? How long will you let this go on? How long will you let this injustice go on before you come and judge your enemies and redeem your people? How long, O Lord? And look what his answer is. There was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. That's heavy. But I think it fits with what Peter is saying. How do we, how are we involved in hastening the day of the Lord? We get involved in global missions. We get in we get involved in worldwide evangelism. And that work will cost some of us our lives. But even that martyrdom of faithful proclaimers of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the mechanisms he uses to speed his coming. Seems as we read Revelation 6, there's a defined number of martyrs. And when the last one is martyred, then the end will come. He says to those who are saying, how long, O Lord, how long? Wait, wait a little while longer until the full number of those who are to be killed, like you have been killed, are killed. So I don't want to be like calling you to global missions. I don't want to be calling you to uproot your comfortable lives here and plant them in an uncomfortable place and not be honest that some of you will not come back from that place. But I also don't want to say that and say that it's futile. I'm saying the blood of the martyrs is a beautiful thing unto the Lord and worth it and speeds his coming. One of the ways we hasten the day is by evangelism, specifically global missions. Number two, one of the ways we hasten the day is by prayer. And this won't take nearly as long. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he taught them to pray for the day. Taught them to pray that the day would come, right? Look at Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Pray then this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When's that that happen ultimately? On the great day. On the day of God. At the return of Christ. That's when that happens. So one of the ways we hasten the day is by praying. Just as Jesus taught us to pray that the day would come. Just as John demonstrated that we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? That's one of the ways we hasten the coming of the Lord. And then finally, we hasten the day by our growth in sanctification. We hasten the day through our repentance from sin and our obedience unto the Lord. And I'm basing that primarily on verse 11 of this very text. Since these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? If we want to speed the day, we'd be the kind of people we ought to be. 
right? Holy conduct, godliness, growth in Christ-likeness, which involves repentance of sin and the pursuit of godliness. And I also say this based on Acts chapter 3, which is Peter's own preaching in the earliest days of the church. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. It seems like Peter understood that repentance was part of what God used to bring about, will use to bring about the return of Christ. So how can we hasten the coming day of the Lord? Through repentance. Obedience, holiness, and godliness. And all of this, all of this begs us to do some introspection. Right? If we are called to look for, long for, and even hasten the coming day of the Lord, and if we hasten the coming day of the Lord by our participation in evangelism, by our praying, and by our growth in godliness, we need to ask ourselves some questions. Number one, do we even desire the return of Christ? Do do we really want Jesus to return, or are we pretty happy with the way things are? Just maintain the status quo. And if we say, no, I do, I do want Christ to return, then we need to ask ourselves, does my life fit that? Am I busy? Am I giving myself to global missions and evangelism? Am I giving myself to prayer? Am I giving myself to sanctification? Am I serious about growth in godliness? Or does my lifestyle contradict And even overrule, that's probably a better word, does my lifestyle overrule my testimony? Do I say, oh, yes, come quickly, Lord Jesus, but I care nothing about sharing the gospel? Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, but care nothing about prayer? Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, but grow not in godliness? Does my lifestyle overrule my testimony? Which leads to the last question. If so, then where do I repent? How do I repent? What does my repentance look like? Because repentance is necessary if that's the case. So Peter says, Since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God? And then he says, Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because... It's essentially a reminder of what Pastor Joe covered last week, right? Uh, About the destruction and judgment the coming of Jesus will bring on his enemies. We cannot forget that. And merely denying that that will take place, as the false teachers do, will not suffice to escape that coming judgment. Remember, in light of that coming judgment, we should live with godliness and holiness. But Pastor Peter in this phrase, seems to be setting up a contrast to encourage his audience, to encourage the believers, to encourage us. In fact, notice the very next word. He says, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's a great place to end today with the happy reminder that the day of the Lord will be terrible for his enemies But it will be great and wonderful for those of us who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Notice the contrasting language here. But, that's a radical shift of gears. 
We, that's a radical shift of gears from those that will be burnt up and destroyed. We, who've been saved by grace through faith. Peter reminds us of the promises of God. The promise of God. A promise that he will keep, despite the way things look. Like That's an important reminder. It's, imp- it's important for us to be a reminder, uh, re- reminded of the promises of God for a new day when we look around and see such brokenness around us. Right? We need to be reminded when we see the delay of the return of Christ that God has not failed to keep any of his promises, right? We, we might say, they were saying after like 20 years, they were saying, where's the promise of his coming? 2,000 years later, we're still hearing that. We're feeling the tension of that delay. So as we look at the delay and we say, how long, O Lord? How long before you come back? We need to hear him say, soon. Soon. We need to trust his promise that he is coming back. And when we look at the decay of the world around us, when we look at the trajectory of godlessness, worldliness all around us, when it looks to us like evil is winning and righteousness is losing, does it feel like that to you sometimes? No? I think it feels like that a lot. Globally, even locally, it feels like folks that are trying to live for Jesus are getting crushed. Folks that have embraced all the worldliness and godlessness seem to be prospering. When I look at the decay of the world around me, I need to be reminded of the promise that it won't always be like this. A different day is coming. A new day is coming. And that new day will be a day of righteousness, not of wickedness. And so Peter here wants us to have hope. Hope that is anchored in the grace of God that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hope of this new day of righteousness that is coming. Look at Revelation chapter 22. I think this is a bit of a parallel with what he says at the end of verse 13 when he says, in which righteousness dwells. According to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, John sees all this. In Revelation 22 verse 12, he says, Behold, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter, may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Outside, right? Inside are those who have had their robes washed white. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And then he says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Right? The new day, the new place is a day of righteousness and a place of righteousness. And the way in is granted without cost. It's given as a gift of grace that we receive by faith, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're not just talking about a new day. We're talking about a new place, right? This text in 2 Peter, along with other texts in the New Testament, correct what seems to be a common misunderstanding among people like us. 
In this room, there's a common misunderstanding. I think many folks like us assume that our eternal existence will be ethereal. That is, that our eternal existence will lack material substance. It will be immaterial. It will be intangible. We imagine that for all of eternity, we'll float around on clouds as disembodied mists forever and ever. We think that. We think that's what heaven is like. But that is not the biblical picture, at least not for the long term, for the people of God. Sure, in the short term, our souls, that is the immaterial part of us, when we die, goes to be with the Lord. Right? When we die as believers, as those who are in Christ, the immaterial part of us, our souls, spirit, whatever you want to call it, goes to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? And we cling to that promise and we delight in that promise. But when that happens, our bodies go in the ground. The physical part of us goes into the ground. But on the great day of the Lord, our bodies will be raised. We believe in the bodily resurrection, right? We believe in the bodily resurrection of believers because we believe in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the day of the Lord, there will be a resurrection of the dead. And we will dwell in those resurrected and glorified bodies forever and ever with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. If you were here in our study of Revelation, I've already fleshed this out for you a couple times. But I want to remind you because it seems like we forget that part. We, we affirm the physical resurrection of the dead, but somehow we still think, oh, I'm just going to float around on a cloud forever and ever. No, 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 our eternal existence with the Lord will be a physical existence, not merely a spiritual existence. And I say that based on the scriptures and based on the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ after he died and was raised. He was a physical being. His glorified body was a physical body. It was similar to his old body before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, right? It was similar. People recognized him. People knew him. He bore scars and things like that. He got hungry. Have you ever noticed how often the gospel writers talk about Jesus eating after the resurrection? Like That's significant. He's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. He's not floating around. He's walking around. He's filling his belly up with food, right? But in some ways, it's not like his old body because he enters places he should not be able to enter, right? And he can cloak himself somehow so that people don't recognize him. So there's a continuity with the old body, but a discontinuity as well. And so we believe that, that we will experience a similar thing. Our eternal existence as the people of God will be physical, not merely spiritual. But it will be different from what we have known because there will be no trace of the curse of sin that was brought on the entire creation at the fall. All right, so let's think about this for a minute, and this is fun. Imagine the good things that you enjoy now. Imagine it in this category, athletic endeavors. This will speak to some of you, not, not to others. But you know how good it feels to hit a drive right down the center? Like right on the screws and right down the center with a little bit of draw? That's glorious, right? There is delight in it. It doesn't happen very often. But there's delight in it, right? Or you run the perfect race, right? There is delight in that. Or you hit the buzzer beater, swish shot, right? There's some delight in that. Or think about it in the category of physical pleasures. You have the most amazing piece of chocolate cake. And you're like, life just does not get any better than this. Or, or maybe, maybe your first blizzard when the Dairy Queen finally reopens. And, and you go and, and, and you get it and it's just right. And they mound it up with whipped cream. And you just, you just delight in every bite of it, right? 
Think about it in terms of physical pleasures or maybe in natural wonders. Think about the places you have seen. Maybe it's the Grand Canyon or the ocean or the starry sky on a a dark night. And think about just how incredible it is to observe those things and say, man, this is glorious and this is wonderful. Think about it in terms of spiritual glories that you've experienced. Think about some especially close time you've had with the Lord, maybe at youth camp, maybe on the mission field, maybe in a worship service where you just felt felt like you saw God face to face. You walked with Him and talked with Him. Think about those experiences you've had in in your spiritual life that have just been incredible and wonderful. Those things are delightful now. Imagine how much greater those things would be without the stain of sin polluting every aspect of that experience. Right? When you hit a drive on the screws straight down the center, you're still an old man doing it. And it didn't go as far as you want it to go. And it's never going to land just right. There's always going to be some brokenness to it. And that chocolate cake is going to make you fat. It is. Every time, it's going to make you fat. And the Grand Canyon, he just did that with his finger. And there are rattlesnakes down there. And that white water is no joke. At the bottom, it'll kill you. It's broken. Even those things that we look at that are so broken, and those moments that you've had where you felt like you had to see God face to face, it was only dimly through a darkened glass. As good as that was, it was only dimly through a darkened glass. Imagine what it will look like when that chocolate cake doesn't make you fat. When the rattlesnakes cannot hurt you. When you actually see God face to face. And you dwell with him for all of eternity. That's what we're longing for, right? And so this week, you're going to experience some delight, some pleasure in this world. And as you do it, I hope that you will say, what what will this be like without sin staining every bit of it? What will this be like without sin in me receiving it? What will this be like to do this in the presence of God without any barrier, without any restriction, in total freedom? What will this be like? It's better than floating around on a cloud. Like if if that's the way you're thinking about eternity, floating around on a cloud, what, what it will actually be like is better. New heavens and new earth. But listen, that stuff is only for the redeemed. That promise of new heavens and new earth, that promise of no longer dimly through a darkened glass but face to face, that promise of total deliverance from the penalty and the power and even the presence of sin, that promise is only for the people of God who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only for those who are repenting of their sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I invite you to do that today because the reality is the great day of the Lord is a terrible day for everyone else. The great day of the Lord for his friends, for the redeemed, is a terrible day for his enemies. Imagine what the fury of God's wrath is like without any restraint. I believe that the wrath of God is being revealed even now against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Right? I believe Romans chapter 1, that God is displaying his wrath even now but I believe that current display of his wrath is restrained by his mercy. And it's terrible. 
Like even the restrained bit of his wrath is terrible. Imagine what it will be like when there's no restraint, when the floodgate is wide open and the full measure of the wrath of God is poured out on ungodly sinners because of their ungodliness. Listen, as, mu- as much as the people of God look forward to a day of exceeding glory and delight, the enemies of God also look f- forward to the terrifying expectation of judgment that exceeds imagination under the just wrath of God. But there's deliverance. There's redemption available. Repent of your sins and believe in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Cry out to him to rescue you. Lay your life down and follow him and you'll be saved. Repent and believe today. Three areas of application other than that. Three areas of application that I want to hit quickly. Number one, Dick Lucas said this. We are to be looking forward to this brand new heaven and earth and to begin to live life now that shows how much we're getting ready for it. Live life now to show how much we're getting ready for it. Are you getting ready for it? Is that day the desire of your heart? Are you fit for it? Are you getting fit for it? Are you practicing for that day to come? The prospect of that glorious day should impact how we live this day. Number two, our doctrine must impact our practice. Jim Shattuck says, what a person says or does is a fairly good indicator of who that person is. What we believe about where life is headed has a direct influence on our morality or our lack thereof. Is there a disconnect in you between what you believe and how you live? Are you affirming the return of Christ and living with holiness and godliness? If you're denying the return of Christ, it makes perfect sense that you would live in unholiness and ungodliness. But if you are affirming the return of Christ and living in unholiness and ungodliness, there's something wrong. Doctrine must impact practice. Maybe today is a call to repentance. Number four, three, are you longing for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? Are you hastening it by evangelism and prayer and growth? Are you longing for it as the hope of your life? And then finally, I just want to remind you that eschatology, the study of last things, when we talk about the return of Christ, it should drive us to action and not arrogance. Right? It's a really bad thing when you encounter a a, a pastor or a Christian or a biblical scholar who, who can line all the events of the last days up and they come out arrogant about it. And they don't call people to action. Every time, every time the Bible talks about these kind of things, it's a call to live life today in light of those things. It's not a call to answer a test. It's a call to walk faithfully with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want that to be the tone of today. Reflection on the last things should be pastoral, not merely intellectual. It should change how we live. And by God's grace, it will today. Let's stand and pray. Father, help us uh, as we reflect on these things. This coming day, that it would impact how we live now. That we would not get caught up in the clouds, merely reflecting on the glories to come. But that we would pursue your face even now. That we would be marked by Holiness and godliness, holiness is and godliness is.
that our whole lives would be marked by this, that we'd be growing in every area and being conformed to the image of Christ, that we would be busy about evangelism, that we'd be preaching the gospel to our neighbors, and that we'd be bold to take it to the nations, that we'd be praying that you would send Christ back soon, God, we pray for men and women and boys and girls who, when they think about the return of Christ, they think only about judgment because they know not your grace. Pray that you would make your grace known to them today. That as you did for us, you would do for them. Reach down and rescue them. Give them new hearts, new lives, new hope. By grace, through faith in Jesus. We pray in his name.